science story. Huh? Is NYU scientist the... I felt right. And I just thought, well... I figured it out. It was that golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hi everyone, I'm Ben Lilly, and welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. This week we're bringing you two stories about observational errors, a neuroscientist struggles to connect with her friends, and a lawyer interviewing prisoners who have been deemed unfit to stand trial by reason of insanity makes a startling discovery. Our first story is from Chi Lin, who was recorded in July 2016 at Union Hall in Brooklyn. The theme was Mistakes. So I'm the kind of person who try to avoid any sort of conflict in all occasions, as you can tell from my smile. But then three years ago, in one of my philosophy classes, I had infuriated a room full of my classmates and totally out of my expectation. In that class, we were discussing Kafka's metamorphosis and self-identity. Very exciting topic. My classmates were all very, very excited about it. And they just went back and forth, back and forth for almost half an hour about why a beetle and a human can have the same self-identity and why the family members just really accept this fact. And sitting there, looking at all this intense debate, I was thinking, hmm, this, this discussion is not leading to any fruitful answer. Maybe I should say something to help move this forward. So as an aspiring neuroscientist, I raised my hand. And I say, all aspects of the human experiences can be explained by clusters of neurons and their activities in the brain. And um, I think this is an answer, uh, this is a question that can be answered by science. So saying this, I think my classmates will understand that let's move on to the next topic. Science will give us <laughs> the answer. And to my surprise, they were already offended. And it almost sounded to me that the word brain should be a taboo in such a discussion. And one of them even questioned if i denying the existence of soul. Well, I'm not saying there's no soul, but I do think you need a brain to have a soul. But of course, I didn't say this out loud. As I said, I try to avoid any sort of conflict, and I don't want this to become an even more heated debate. So for the remaining of that class, I just remained silent, and probably was a mysterious smirk on my face. And I'm thinking, hmm, stay tuned, my friends. I'm going to study the brain and tell you where self-identity leads. Yeah, so that was me three years ago just got introduced to the field of neuroscience. And it's super excited about this idea that human experiences can be explained by looking at neural processes happening in the brain. So I was like this kid who just got this new pair of glasses, and all of a sudden, the whole world just looked different to me. And I was so excited about this that I apply this to everything in my life. And I mean everything. One Saturday, a very good friend of mine called me and tells me that she needs someone to talk to. She just broke up with her boyfriend and they've been together for a long time. She loved him very much and she tells me that they, she's having these dreams of fights with her ex-boyfriend and she would wake up in the middle of the night crying and sweating 
and this has been really disturbing to her, and she doesn't know how to move on. After listening to her, I go, you know what? I've been reading about memory replay during sleep recently. It's basically this idea that brain cells that fire at the time of memory formation, they fire again in the same sequence during sleep. And this is thought to be the processes underlying why memory can be stored across such long time scale. And I think what happened to you could be because your fights with your ex-boyfriend were so painful to you and caused you a lot of distress at the time. And your brain just thinks this must be very critical to your survival. So they just got replay more during your sleep. <laughs> it's, it's your brain. So as you can imagine, that conversation didn't end up too well. <laughs> anyway, fast forward. That summer, I had a crush on a guy living on the same floor as me. In the very first email I wrote to him, I wrote, have you heard of misattribution error? Yeah. So we attribute reasons for our physical arousal, such as sweating or accelerating heart rate, to reasons that we think cause this arousal. And scientists have found that people can mistakenly attribute this physical arousal to wrong reasons. And I think that could be what happened to me. Yeah, and then I just go on to talk about the mere exposure effect. Um, so basically, I mean, I think I like you, but I don't think it's because of you. I think it's because the weather was really nice when we first met, and then, and then we just saw each other too often afterwards. I mean, we wait and the wait for the elevator every day and we see each other. That makes sense. And yeah, I think this is how you impress a guy. <laughs> it, it worked okay. He did ask me to help him with his brother's college application essay afterwards. <laughs> anyway, let's not talk about it today. Let's talk about something that's more interesting. What I do in the lab. I study emotion and memory in particular, how emotional memory can be changed. So as an undergraduate research assistant, a major part of my responsibility is to recruit study participants via an email. And um, at times, we will get these emails from people with psychological problems, but I usually don't even open this kind of email because first, um, I don't know enough to answer their questions. And second, it's not directly related to what I'm doing. But one day, as I'm scrolling through the mailbox, an email titled, Possibility of Erasing Unwanted Memory, question mark, caught my eye. Um, a very, this is a very typical kind of help-seeking email that I would usually ignore. But um, this one is a little bit special because the sender's name is in Chinese, in Chinese characters. So um, out of curiosity, I click on it. So it's from this man in China. His wife confessed to him several months ago that she was having an affair with someone they both knew. But um, after a long and painful discussion, they decided that they still love each other and would like to stay together. 
But since that, this man, he just couldn't get thoughts of his wife and this other man being together out of his mind. And this has been really disturbing to him. He tried to seek help from psychiatric professionals, but nothing worked out for him. He was very desperate for a way out. And as he's looking for treatments online by himself, he stumbled upon a paper published by my supervisor several years ago about disrupting emotional memory using electroconvulsive therapy. So he's so desperate for a way out that he decided that he will email us. But what struck me most about his email is not just its length and the emotional intensity, but also his language. There's no grammar at all. And the tenses were all wrong. And he used extremely weird words that no one really used them. As someone who also learned English as a second language, I think I know how he wrote that email. He probably had the email and an online Chinese dictionary, a Chinese English dictionary open in two separate browsers. And then he would write his email in Chinese first and then translate them word by word using that Chinese English dictionary. And sitting there, I just couldn't help but imagine how helpless and desperate one has to be in order to spend all these efforts to write such a long email in a foreign language and send it to a group of researchers thousands of miles away who may not even reply to him if he sent it to someone like me. But at that moment, I do want to reply to him. But then I realize I don't know how to. Based on what I know, it's not yet possible to safely erase memory with, without causing severe side effects. But if I tell him so, will this crush his last hope? So I wait, and um, my supervisor comes in. I show him this email. And he tells me that we got a lot of emails like this. And what we do in the lab actually travel beyond the ivory tower that I've been trapping myself in and may bring hope to other people. And on that, that day, I just realized there's a very difficult part of being a scientist and doing science. That is, how do you explain what we know or what we don't know yet about human beings in a way that is scientifically correct, but still bring people hope. And um, I think I'm still not very good at it because um, a lot of my friends just stopped calling me about their crash problems. <laughs> but um, I promise I will work on it. <laughs> That was Chi Lin. Hailing from Guangzhou, China, Chi is currently working in Dr. Daniela Schiller's lab at Mount Sinai as a lab manager investigating the flexibility of emotional memory and the neural basis of social cognition. Chi graduated from New York University with a bachelor's degree in psychology in December 2015. She has a picture of her brain attached to her refrigerator door. Stay tuned for the next story after this message from our sponsor. 
This episode of The Story Collider is brought to you by 23andMe.com. As you might remember from science class, there are 23 pairs of chromosomes that make up your DNA. Well, that's where 23andMe.com, a genetic testing service, gets its name. 23andMe allows you to have access to information about your DNA. You can find out how your genes may influence your health, your ancestry, and even physical traits with over 65 online genetic reports personalized to you. So, how does 23andMe work? You simply purchase a kit on their website, 23andMe.com. When the test arrives at your home, you provide a saliva sample by spitting into a tube, the best part, and then you send it back. Once your DNA has been analyzed, you'll get to learn more about what makes you, you. We are all genetically 99.5% the same. Wouldn't you like to know more about what's in that last 0.5% that makes you unique? With 23andMe, you can. To order your kit today, visit 23andMe.com slash Collider. That's the number 23andme dot com slash Collider. Welcome back. Our second story today is from Michael Perlin. It was recorded in November 2016 at the Hilton New Orleans Riverside in New Orleans, Louisiana. The theme was Criminology. This show was produced in partnership with Springer Nature's Before the Abstract podcast, which you can find at beforetheabstract.com. I'm going to be telling you a story about a case I did. Uh, I was, uh, before I became a professor, I was a real lawyer uh, for 13 years, three years as the head public defender in Trenton, New Jersey, and then eight years as the state mental health advocate. And this story really deals with both of those. Uh, we, we take you back to 1971 when I was a rookie public defender. I used to say I was 12 years old, but nobody laughs anymore, you know. Uh, and uh, because I was the rookie, they used to, they did rookie hazing. And they gave the newest, youngest person in the office the cases that couldn't be won. And these were the cases at the mellifluously named Room Building. It was named after some former governor or attorney general. And it was, quote, the maximum security hospital for the criminally insane. Uh, and it was exactly what you would expect uh, from you know, a 70s movie as to what that looked like. The movie was no exaggeration. Uh, and the cases were charades. Uh, first of all, they were, they were never, the only way they would be scheduled is if one of the patients had the wherewithal and the eight cents for a postcard to send me a note and saying, please represent me. And those postcards were treated as writs of habeas corpus uh, because there were no regularly scheduled hearings then. And I went and I represented them and I never won a single one because the attorney general had two questions to ask the state doctor. Doctor, is Mr. Jones mentally ill? And the answer was always yes. And could he benefit from treatment? And the answer is yes. Brackets, such treatment wasn't available there, but that was never within the scope of the court. So I lost every case. The next year, the United States Supreme Court decided a case called Jackson versus Indiana, which was the grandfather of modern mental disability law. Theon Jackson was a person who was deaf, who was mute, who was severely intellectually disabled. He was charged with taking three purses from porches in his small town in Indiana. Uh, and after he went to jail, he was transferred to the state hospital for the criminally insane to which he was committed until he was no longer insane. Well, hello. He wasn't insane. He was clearly not competent to stand trial. Uh, and he stays there. Uh, somehow he got a wonderful lawyer who took his appeal to the United States Supreme Court. And in 1772, the Supreme Court ruled in Jackson versus Indiana uh, for the first time ever that the due process clause 
applied to people in psychiatric institutions and said, we're not going to set a bright line, but Mr. Jackson has been locked up in this maximum security facility for three and a half years. There's no chance he's ever going to become competent to stand trial again. Three and a half years is too much. If he is dangerous, he can be transferred to a psychiatric hospital. If he's not, he needs to be released. So I said, my goodness, uh, this is a great decision. And what am I going to do in New Jersey? Because I knew I was representing, and this, I've been doing this for about a year or so, I guess, about 25 or 30 people kept rotating. The guys who, and there were a couple of women in the hospital, but I never represented them. Uh, the guys who were the most verbal, who had the eight cents to send me the postcard, but I knew from walking through the hospital that there were many, many, many more. So what do I do? Of, I used to work with an expert witness named Bob Sadoff, a forensic psychiatrist, best expert witness I've ever had the honor to work with. And Bob says to me one day, Michael, you're a lawyer, file a class action. Right. Well, I have to tell you, I was a terrible civil procedure student, OK, uh, which I taught for 25 years later. But that's another story. Uh, and I said, great idea of uh, apropos Aaron and Shane about crimes. Filing a class action was not in the jurisdiction of the public defender's office in New Jersey. So I filed this illegally. I've never been caught. I think the statute of limitations have passed. Don't tell anybody. I filed a class action called Dixon versus Cahill. And after skirmishing on discovery matters for many, many months, I wind up, the judge grants all my motions, case settled for about 98% of what I wanted. And the judge said, yes, Jackson versus Indiana needs to be implemented in New Jersey. And I was really proud. And on the way out of the court, he said, oh, Mr. Perlin, by the way, since you've done such a good job for the class, I'm now appointing you to represent each one of these people individually at the hearings. Good work is its own reward. It turned out there were 225 people in the hospital. And I will just cut to the chase. And I'm not saying this because I was such a great lawyer. I wasn't. I just did my job. 185 of them were there illegally. And so I was, I quote, one, if you talk about one loss percentages, which is such a silly thing for any kind of a public defender lawyer to talk about. I was successful. I can't do the math in 185 of 225. But I wound up seeing them all individually. And one of those cases is my story. There was no rhyme or reason to how to do it, so I did it alphabetically. Uh, and I'd gotten up to the S's, and the next person on my list was named Jacob Shukovsky. And I went to the guard, because the guards all knew me very well, because I used to you know, see them all the time. Uh, and I learned that Jacob had come from Russia in the 1940s, and he had been in the room building since 1947. This is 1973. And I said, okay, I'd like to see him. And he said, ah, don't waste your time, Michael. He's a vegetable. He can't talk. Well, you know, uh, with, you know, the chutzpah of a 27-year-old, you know, assistant public defender, this is not going to stop me. So I go up, I go to him, and he's in, a, he's in a cell by himself. It's a fairly big cell, but it's a cell. I said, hi, Jacob. My name is Michael Perlin, and I'm your public defender assigned to represent you. I shake his hand. He doesn't say a word. Two weeks later, I go back, exactly the same thing. Two weeks later, I go back. The moral of the story is I don't give up easy, right? <laughs> he hands me a piece of paper. I look at the paper, and it looks really, mostly to me, kind of gibberish and scrawlings, but I see on the paper the letters CCCP. 
I was a stamp collecting nerd as a kid, and I had stamps from Russia. Right. USSR is CCCP in Cyrillic. So he has said something, and I know he's Russian. So I say to the guard, look at this. He says, yeah, yeah, he's done that before. We brought the priest in to talk to him, and the priest said, he's a vegetable. I'm walking out of the, out of, out of the room building with my investigator, of, who was a wonderful person, who was a high school graduate, had more common sense than any of the lawyers I ever worked with. Of, and I said, Ronnie, there's something here. Like, what's going on? And Ronnie says to me, and this is the most important moment of my legal career, maybe they brought in the wrong priest. I said, oh, my God. I mean, what do I know? You know, I'm a Jewish kid from New Jersey. I don't know anything about Russian Orthodox priests. I don't know anything about Cyrillic language. I said, maybe they did. So this was before Al Gore invented the Internet, you know. So I go to the yellow pages of Mercer County, which is where Trenton was, and Bucks County, which is right across the river in Pennsylvania, uh, to both phone books. And I start calling every Russian Orthodox priest within about 50 miles. And most, most of the priests had no idea what I was talking about. But two or three said to me, oh, you know what? How about if you call Father Tom? I'm not sure if his name was Tom. I said, why should I call Father Tom? He said, well, Father Tom comes from, and I don't remember where, it was one of the Stans. I mean, who knew the Stans in 1973, right? You know, uh, whether it was Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, I don't know. He was from a Stan. He said, they talk Cyrillic different there. If any of you are from one of those stands and have anything to say, I would love to hear from you. So I call up Father Tom. I say, hi, I'm Michael Pearl and blah, blah, blah. I said, I can't pay you anything. He said, oh, no, this is God's work. I'm happy to come. I come up to the room building, walk in to see Jacob with Father Tom, and Father Tom goes, blah, 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 in Cyrillic to Jacob. Jacob sits up and goes, blah, 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 back to him. They talk for 20 minutes. This is a person who had not said a word since 1947. This is 1973, and Father Tom says to me afterwards, Michael, look, I'm not a psychiatrist, but he's not mentally ill. We talked for 20 minutes. It was a very, very reasonable, rational conversation. He's mad as hell that he's here, you know, which is as rational of a reason as you can have. So, you know, but he is, you know, he certainly is not mentally ill. He simply spoke a different dialogue of Cyrillic. So what do I do now? Well, now I start reviewing the case file. There was no reason to review the case file until now because he wasn't going anywhere. Nothing was going to happen. He comes from any New Jersey people here at all. I know, Alan, that's my son, right? Thank you, Alex. I appreciate that. Um, that was good. Um, there's all sorts of New Jerseys that you know. There's the Sopranos, New Jersey. There's the, Jer you know, the, the Jersey Shore, New Jersey. Uh, there's the New York suburbs and the Philly suburbs. This is the New Jersey nobody knows. The counties that are adjacent to Delaware Bay, east of Philadelphia, west of Cape May, Atlantic City, they are really below the Mason-Dixon line. No one ever thinks of them. He was from one of those counties. I don't remember which. It might have been Salem, might have been Gloucester, might have been Cumberland. Uh, and he's charged with murder in the first degree. And the victim is Vladimir Shukovsky, his brother. Fratricides are very, very rare, and fratricides make you think, what's going on here, right? So I said, okay, I need to find out what's going on. So I called the prosecutor. Also, I figured this case happened in 1947. They're not going to have any witnesses. I'm going to you know, get the case dismissed. But the prosecutor says, oh, 
We lost that file many years ago when we moved courthouses. That file doesn't exist. So I'm now representing somebody who's been in locked up in maximum security for 27 or whatever years for a, to be charged with a, 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 a being held for trial for a crime he could never be tried on because there was no file. So I go home. Uh, my dad, may he rest in peace, was a newspaper man for many, many years. And I told him about this case. And he said, Michael, this is what you do. He said, you go to the morgue. And the morgue is not the, the morgue from, you know, one order type shows. The morgue is where newspapers were kept before there was an internet. And he said, and he knew, and because he was a newspaperman from New Jersey, he knew the editors of every newspaper in New Jersey. He said, oh yeah, so-and-so was the editor of the paper. And he said, I know he kept good records. Go down to his office and you read about the case. Uh, and he, but then he says to me, and don't worry, because I used to wear a suit to court. He says, don't go from court. Go home, put on your old jeans and an old ratty sweatshirt because you're going to be touching newspapers that no one's touched in 27 years. You're going to get filthy. And he was right about that. So I go down, I drive down to South Jersey, I read the file, and if the phrase OMG existed back then, I would have said OMG. It did not. Here's the story. Jacob and his brother Vladimir and many other people had been displaced persons. They had come over from Russia after World War II was over. They lived on these migrant worker farms. They, this was a Friday night. They were around a bonfire. Many, many, many bottles of vodka were consumed. This is from the newspaper story, because that's the only facts we have. Newspapers back then, if there's anyone near my age may remember, would never talk about sex. The word rape did not appear in a newspaper until the 1970s. It was always unwanted sexual congress. Every possible euphemism was, was used to describe anything sexual. Well, what happens is this. They're, they're sitting around the bonfire, and Vladimir, the brother, and we know this, this is the, the, the eyewitness testimony. Vladimir, the brother, is taunting Jacob. Vladimir told him that he was having sex with, I don't remember if it was Jacob's wife or girlfriend, doesn't really matter, and that the wife or girlfriend told Vladimir in very, very graphic terms, obviously, what a better lover he was than Jacob was. Jacob is apoplectic, but Vladimir gets up. This is the Vic. Vladimir gets up, pulls a knife out of his pocket, and goes to stab Jacob, my client. Jacob takes the knife out of Vladimir's hand, because they were both very drunk, didn't have a lot of you know, motor control, and stabs Vladimir, killing Vladimir. The cops come, Jacob is the guy with the knife in his hand. There's a dead body. Jacob gets arrested. Brackets. On that, any first-year criminal law student would get an acquittal within 15 minutes, as they will should. They take Jacob to the local jail. Here's what I haven't told you. Jacob had been in a Stalinist prison for a year or two for counter-revolutionary activities before he came over. I can only imagine how, you know, I read a lot of like Martin Cruz Smith novels, but I can only imagine what that was like in real life, right? He is brought into the prison in this small town in South Jersey, and he sees the gates go down, and he freaks out. But he doesn't freak out as you or I would freak out and start screaming in English. He starts doing it in Cyrillic, in his dialect of Cyrillic. 
word up. These small towns didn't have a lot of jail guards who spoke any dialects of Cyrillic, right? So they say, boy, this guy is really crazy. They sent him to the room building the day he was arrested, and he was there from 1947 until I picked up his case in 1973. So uh, I have notes because there was, there's so many details on this one, I wanted to make sure I didn't lose anything, and I didn't. So I go back to court, and the judge said, Mr. Perlin, you're absolutely right. Mr. Shukovsky is a free man. He said, I'm dismissing the indictment because the state couldn't move on it. And he said, Mr. Shukovsky is a free man, sort of. He says, what do we do? The migrant worker camp where he was was now a shopping mall. And part of it was a state highway. He had no family here. So what do we do? So when we, uh, what, what we did at this point was by now I had transitioned from the public defender office into the public advocate's office where I was director of the mental health advocacy division. Uh, and we had a working with lawyers, what we called field representatives. That was New Jersey civil service talk for psychologists and social workers and psychiatric nurses and advocates working with us on the cases. And I was working with a case uh, on the case with a colleague of mine. And after about eight months, we found, I mean, there's not really a happy ending to the story, you know, spoiler alert. But after about eight months, we found a nursing home. And Jacob was still young. I mean, Jacob was still in his 50s. But this is a person who had not been out of doors in over a quarter of a century. He had not communicated with anybody. And we found an assisted living facility up in Bergen County, where apparently, which is the other end of New Jersey, it's up by the, G, uh, the George Washington Bridge, Apparently, there was in that community many people from the same stan, and there was staff who spoke his dialect. And he went up there, and he was able to go out, and he tinkered, he, he, he puttered in the garden a little bit. He certainly could not get a job. But he was free, and he said to, to my investigator, it's so nice seeing the sunshine. And then he died. And that's my story. Thank you. That was Michael Perlin. Michael is a professor of law emeritus at New York Law School, founding director of New York Law School's online mental disability law program, and founding director of New York Law School's International Mental Disability Law Reform Project in its Justice Action Center. He's also the co-founder of Mental Disability Law and Policy Associates. His hobbies include fishing, birding, playing the clarinet, opera, and the music of Bob Dylan. This project was supported by Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. The Story Collider is produced by me, Brian Wecht, Aaron Barker, Ari Daniel, Christine Gentry, Shane Hanlon, Rosie Waldron, Cassie Soliday, Nissa Greenberg, and Liz Neely. The podcast is produced by Zoe Saunders, and the theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to Union Hall and the Hilton New Orleans Riverside for hosting these shows, and to lawyers. The good ones, anyway. Thanks for listening. This episode of The Story Collider is brought to you by 23andMe.com. Find out what your DNA says about you based on the science behind your 23 pairs of chromosomes. Order your kit today at 23andMe.com slash Collider. That's the number 23andme.com slash Collider.